0: The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Good morning to each of you. It is the day after Christmas, and uh, we're still celebrating Christmas at our house. Today is going to be after church. It's going to be, in fact, Colton reminded me of it this morning. Today's a play day today, right, da- Daddy? After church. you have any meetings after church? I said, I don't have to check my calendar because it's time to get home and to have some play time. So we're still celebrating the Christmas uh, season at our house, remembering what it's really all about, Christ coming in His incarnation, and not merely in an incarnation, but an incarnation to save, becoming man that He might save man as the God-man. And so the Christmas season really is a season of joy, and we talked about this on Friday night. want to continue that. Uh, was it Friday night? Friday night was Christmas Eve, right? All right. Just checking. It's all blurring together now. Uh, But we talked about a little bit on Christmas Eve, this is a season of joy. And we know that it's reflected in our our songs, Joy to the World, right? We sing Joy to the World, although that song is actually about Christ's second coming. Uh, That's a public service announcement. It's actually about (laughs) Jesus' second coming, but we sing it at Christmas, which is great. I have no problem with it, and so do you you guys, I know, have no problem with it. But... um, Angels, we have heard on high. One of the lines is "Why your joyous strains prolong?" Clearly, joy is a, an emphasis there. Oh, holy night! Goes like this: Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus, raise thee. Let us praise His holy name. Oh, uh, come, all ye faithful! Begins with "Oh, come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant." And I bet that a lot of you, if you send out Christmas cards or Christmas letters this year, the word joy found its way into your letters or your cards somewhere uh, uh, as you prepared. Surely the this Christmas season is centered on joy. And that's a good thing because joy is the appropriate emotional and spiritual response to Christ coming to save his people. Christ coming in the incarnation, the Savior has come. The fear that we were living under now no longer because Christ has borne our punishment on the cross. We don't face condemnation anymore. The Savior has come. He is born our judgment on the cross so that we bear it no longer. And so certainly this is a season of joy. But isn't it fitting that in God's providence, as we are making our trek through the Gospel of Luke, that we would land on a text the day after Christmas that actually emphasizes joy? Because maybe it's the case that you had a joyful Christmas and you need to be renewed again in your joy and and grounded again. Or maybe you had a rough Christmas, because Christmases remind you of the hard times of the past or remind you of loss or maybe your Christmas was had to do with uh, in-laws that were challenging or whatever it might be and you are now not feeling so much joy and so it's in God's grace and in this providence we're coming to a text that actually emphasizes joy and let me before we launch into talking about our passage let's just ask the question what is joy? Have you ever asked yourself that, kind of gotten philosophical, and asked yourself, hmm, I wonder what, what is joy? Well, it's challenging to answer that question. It's It's challenging to answer the question, Derek, why do you like chocolate? I'm just like, what kind of question is that? I mean, I just like it? I mean, so there's a sense in which joy, you just know what it is. I have joy or I don't have joy. And Scripture doesn't do a whole lot of defining because it's almost as though we know what it is it's a god-given human emotion that we know what it is and so biblically speaking though we can say that joy is a fruit produced by the holy spirit and it's a vital component of the christian's emotional life and his spir- your spiritual life it's not something to be neglected it's not something optional it's something vital to our christian life a basic de- uh, dic- uh di- dictionary definition goes like this Joy is, quote, a feeling of great happiness, a feeling of great happiness. And then you're like, well, wait a second, what's happiness? Well, let's not get so philosophical, okay. <laughs> we, 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 again, we kind of know what that means, a feeling of great happiness. Here's a longer definition, quote, the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. That's just a longer, a broader definition of joy you'd find in a dictionary, Here's some more uh, biblically based definitions. The Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary defines joy like, joy like this quote, Joy is a state of delight and well being that results from knowing and serving God. That's a good definition, I think, as, w- as much as you can define joy. Uh, the Evangelical Dictionary Theology defines joy like this Quote, A delight in life that runs deeper than pain or pleasure. From a biblical perspective, it is not limited to or tied solely to external circumstances. Joy is a gift of God, and like all of his inner gifts, it can be experienced even in the midst of extremely difficult circumstances. Now, I would say amen to all of that, that joy is a God-given gift. It's a fruit of the Spirit, and for that reason, it can be in you. It can be experienced even when your outside life is falling apart. You can still have the joy of the Holy Spirit, the joy of the Lord. However, I've noticed something interesting that among biblically-minded Christians, there seems to be this dichotomy between happiness and joy. Happiness is kind of this temporal feeling that you get, and it's based on favorable temporal circumstances. But joy, on the other hand, is more long-lasting, it's more enduring, it's rooted in something deeper, and therefore joy is superior to happiness, and, and so joy should be sought rather than happiness in the Christian life. I don't think that's a helpful dichotomy, actually, And you even notice it in that basic definition I gave you earlier. Joy and happiness are so closely tied together that they're almost synonymous. In fact, this distinction between joy and happiness is actually a recent development in the English language. I'm not sure if you were uh, aware of that. And especially among Christians, trying to distinguish between joy and happiness. Randy Alcorn, in his excellent book entitled Happiness, which I do commend to you, Uh, He says, quote, among Christ's followers, happiness was once a positive, desirable word. Only in recent times have happiness and joy been set in contrast to each other. So he recognizes that there's this dichotomy that Christians have developed that set happiness and joy apart from each other. And he says that's not really the case historically. And he goes on in his book. It's quite a dense book, but it's it's good nevertheless. He goes on to give a case both historically and biblically that joy and happiness are should be seen as relatively synonymous. And so I'm going to use them synonymously throughout our passage today. So if I say happiness, when you think I should have said joy, I'm meaning basically the same thing. And this is important to grasp because in our passage for today, Jesus is going to instruct his disciples about where to root your joy, which is the same thing as saying Jesus is going to tell his disciples and us today where to root our happiness. So you look at the title of today's message, it says Joy's Deepest Root. It could say Happiness's Deepest Root. God created us for joy. God created us for happiness. And we will only be happy when our happiness is rooted in the right soil. And so I'll use these words interchangeably throughout today's message. Now, if you recall from a few weeks ago, some of us need to be brought up to speed. Maybe you are visiting. We are now entering into a passage that touches back on a the earlier passage, where Jesus sends out his 72 disciples. These are 72 beyond his inner 12, so this is a different group. Ministry, gospel ministry is spreading out beyond the 12 disciples, and he sends them out on a short-term missions trip, similar to the short-term mission trip that he had sent his 12 disciples out on previously in Luke chapter 9. And he's sent them out, and he said that they were to proclaim the gospel, heal, and announce the kingdom of God. And these 72 were told that they would meet with reception and rejection. They would meet with hospitality and hostility. And now they come back and and Jesus had told them, listen, it's going to be good, but there's also going to be tough times. I'm sending you uh, lambs in, in the midst of wolves. And what was encouraging about that is he sent these 72 lambs on the midst of wolves. And how many came back? Well, all 72. So that's encouraging. Jesus protected his sheep while they went out. In this hostile environment but whatever rejection and hostility they experienced apparently things went generally pretty well because how did they come back they come back with joy it says here the 72 returned with joy so whatever difficulty they experienced on the short-term missions trip it's overshadowed by how well it went because they come back with joy which is an encouraging note what was the root of their joy what made them happy on this missions trip. Well they tell us Luke tells us the 72 returned with joy saying, "Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name." There it is. There is their the root of their joy. And what's interesting about this statement is that Jesus when he sent them out, he never said anything about casting out demons. He told them to heal, he told them to heal the sick to proclaim that the kingdom of God had come near them, but he doesn't say anything about them casting out demons. He did tell his 12 disciples to do that in chapter 9, but he doesn't tell them explicitly to do that here in chapter 12, the 72 to do that in chapter 12. And when they come back, they seem a little surprised at this too. They say, Lord, even, or the word in the original could also be translated also, Lord, also the demons are subject to us in your name, which seems to me to mean that this was kind of surprising and unexpected. They went out to heal, to do gospel ministry, to pro- proclaim the kingdom, and all of a sudden they find out that, whoa, we have power over the demons too. <laughs> this is pretty cool, <laughs> right? And of course it brings them great joy. This was the cause of their great feelings of happiness. They had power and authority over the demonic realm and we have to understand how massive of authority that this really was demons are supernatural beings they're fallen angels and so little let's do a little demonology for all of us we not all of us know where demons come from demons are actually fallen angels there's a text in ezekiel uh, 28 there's a text in isaiah 14 there's a text in revelation chapter 12 that indicate that when satan fell from his place of righteousness. He was high up in God's echelon of angels. He was one of perhaps even God's highest angels. That when he fell, he took a large group of angels with him in this heavenly rebellion, we might call it. They are going to, they, in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 indicate that Satan even wanted to try to usurp God's position and that was his sin, this pride of wanting God's place. And so he gets cast out of heaven and he takes a bunch of angels with them and angels are not able, they don't have the ability to be redeemed like human beings made in the image of God. Once they fell, they were locked into eternal condemnation and never to be redeemed. Satan will not be redeemed. You know, there are some people teaching that these days. It's kind of crazy, Satan will not be redeemed. Demons, angels cannot be redeemed once they fall. So demons are fallen angels. Most importantly, we need to remember that they are exceedingly powerful beings. They are far stronger than humans. And they were wreaking havoc on individuals and families in Israel during Jesus' day. Jesus himself delivered many people from demons demonic possession to demonic oppression and already up to this point in the Gospel of Luke we've already seen Jesus do a ton of demon relieving ministry where he's relieving people of their demon oppression and possession for example Luke chapter 4 verses 31 through 37 tells us that Jesus came laying on uh, healing and laying on his hands on people demons came out of many it says Luke says crying out you are the son of God, that actually comes after he heals the man with the unclean demon in cha- uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 37. So then after chapter 4, 31 through 37, then he is. it's said that he is casting out demons of many other people. So he casts out the demons from this one, then he goes out and casts out demons from many others. Jesus delivered the Gerasene demoniac, whose demon was destroying this man's life, if you might recall in Luke chapter 8. This is how his life was described, Quote, "...for many a time it had, the demon had seized him." He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and he would be driven by the demon into the desert. This man just, just imagined the, the havoc that had been wreaked on this man's life by this demon who was more powerful than he was. A little while later, Jesus healed a boy with a demon. Listen how Luke describes this situation. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him so much that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and it will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And so here you have a a father. Imagine your child is being oppressed and possessed by this demon and just destroying him. And you can see it before your very eyes how he's being destroyed by this demonic creature who only wants his harm. And you're pleading with Jesus to do something. Why? Because that's what these demons do. They, They seek and kill and destroy. That's what Satan's mission is and that's what his demons do. These soldiers of the counterfeit king, Satan we were devastating people all throughout Israel. And now these 72 were experiencing a cosmic supernatural authority over a realm that up to this point did not often submit to human authority. In Jesus' name, these 72 were able to wield effective power over this destructive and very evil force. And because of that, they were able also to deliver people from demonic oppression and possession. They were able to display the power of Christ to a watching world. They were able to bring healing and health both to individuals and to families who were presently under the scourge of Satan and his cronies. So you have to just stand back and go, well, that's wonderful. How wonderful is this ministry? What a glorious, helpful, merciful ministry to deliver people from the hand of demons and restore their earthly lives and even their spiritual lives. Well, how does Jesus respond to their newfound joy? How does he respond? Because what I just said was true. This is a wonderful ministry. And it seems to make sense that you would come breaking down the door saying, Jesus, we gotta, we got to debrief you about our missions trip because, man, it was going down and it was awesome. And you won't believe what we did for the people out there. How does Jesus respond? Well, as he so often does, he responds with a statement that you wonder, did you just hear what I said? Because it, because it doesn't seem to follow. And that's good because Jesus, as the master teacher, wants you to think a little more deeply about his response and about what you just had said this is how Jesus responds and he said to them I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven wait a second Jesus I'm sorry we came back this is really exciting maybe you didn't hear me we were casting out demons we are restoring people's lives we have great authority over these demons they're not going to mess with us anymore they're not going to mess with people anymore we got this this is awesome let's throw a party Jesus responds, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus actually needs to correct the 72 at this point, if you can believe it. We'll get to that in a moment here. Jesus sees that their joy is not rooted in the right kind of soil or not rooted deep enough. Jesus needs to uproot their happiness and reestablish it in richer, better, more enduring soil. Jesus begins his correction. Here's, here's he's, That statement, that kind of even cryptic statement, Jesus is going to begin his correcting of these disciples. What is he referring to here when he says, I saw Satan fall from lightning as like lightning from heaven? There's, there's a few options. Is he looking forward to prophetically a time when Jesus, or the, 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 I'm sorry, when, is Jesus looking forward to a time when Michael the archangel is going to cast Satan out of heaven, like we see in Revelation chapter 12, 7 through 10, or is Jesus looking back and referring to Satan's original fall? Those are a couple of options um, in terms of interpreting this passage and what he means by that phrase. I think the context leads us to believe that Jesus is referring to Satan's original fall. And the reason I take that interpretation is because Jesus is emphasizing the authority that these 72 have, and this authority is a derivative authority or another way to say it it's a delegated authority it's not original with them it's been given to them the son of god was with his father when satan rebelled against them in heaven and he was with his father when they cast him out of heaven satan had no authority apart from the father and the son and he would not remain in heaven as long as the father and the son were reigning on high and they cast him Out of heaven. And then he follows up by saying, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. So the emphasis here is on the delegated authority that these 72 have. Jesus is the one who has given them this authority, just like the Father and the Son had given the original Lucifer prior to his fall his authority. So Jesus is simply acknowledging that he has given them tremendous power. He's, he, 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 he needs them to see that. It is true. Their ministry is significant, okay? He's not denigrating it. Their ministry does bear unique authority. They will be shielded from demonic power, and they will not be overwhelmed by it. That's the point. Jesus is in charge this whole time. He has delegated the authority to them And they need to recognize it. Now, this reference to serpents and scorpions is is very interesting. It's interesting because there's a phrase, this exact phrase is is given in Deuteronomy 8.15 when the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness and God is telling them, remember how you're wandering and I have protected you from serpents and scorpions. And so the emphasis here that Jesus is making, I think, is that, that reference is to protection. To these 72, Jesus has protected them. They're going to navigate through the treacherous waters of, of demon possession and oppression and, and dealing with all these kinds of harsh realities, and you will be protected. Not only that, but you will, here it is, tread on serpents and scorpions. So now we even have a step up. It's, no, it's not just protection. You are now going to tread on them, and I think it's best to see this as a metaphorical reference to the demonic spiritual realm that they will have authority over, which is precisely why he says these words, and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So this phrase, serpents and scorpions, I think has a metaphorical reference to Satan and his minions and how they are going to, the 72 are going to tread over these demonic forces I think it also could have a, a literal reference as well because in Acts 28-3 we, fi- we find the Apostle Paul getting bit by a viper that should have killed him and it doesn't kill him. And so Jesus actually physically protecting his uh, disciples from actual serpents and scorpions. But I, I also wanna, I want us to, to think back a little further than Deuteronomy. When you see this language of treading on serpents, where does your mind go or where should it go? Well, mine goes to Genesis three fifteen, where the seed of the woman is said to now crush or step on the head of the serpent. The serpent was the one who had crept into the garden, who had deceived Adam and Eve, who had through his treachery now introduced and through his treachery and temptation in Adam's sin had now introduced sin into the world and into God's image bearers. And... The fallout that happens and Satan it drifts away, or I'm sorry, Adam drifts away from God. He then also blames his wife. There's relational friction and conflict immediately after the fall. And then God curses the serpent and then promises immediately after that, before he pronounces the curse upon Adam and Eve, before that, he, he promises that this Messiah, the seed of the woman, is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. You know that serpent who just deceived my people? There's coming someone someday who's going to crush him and defeat him. So when we look at this treading on serpents, I think we should have some thought going back to Genesis 3.15. And you might be saying, wait wait a second, Derek, but that Genesis 3.15 is talking about the Messiah. That's talking about Jesus who's going to crush the serpent's head. And I would say amen to that. But if you are united by faith to the Messiah, you are now his spiritual offspring, and you get to share in the victory. You get to share in the treading, in a sense. In fact, Paul puts it this way. This is an amazing verse. I don't know. You know, you just read through the Bible, and sometimes you're like, I, has that always been there, or did that get inserted in 2020? I don't know, because of that. And, uh, Romans 12, 1620 is one of those verses for me, because it's just, wow, I... I hadn't seen this before. Listen to how Paul talks about this. He says to the Roman church and to to God's people, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And you're like, under my feet? Under our feet? I thought he crushed it under uh, Jesus' feet. I thought Satan gets crushed under Jesus' feet, and he does. But Jesus will accomplish this crushing through his people. He deals the death blow at the cross. We cannot replicate his crosswork. That's not what's going on here. But because of that crosswork, now we get to participate in the treading of the serpent. His people get to participate in the post-defeat battles and the post-war cleanup and what a high and holy privilege. And they're getting a taste of this. These 72 get the opportunity to take part in the crushing and the treading of the serpent. When Jesus arrived on earth, the official destruction of Satan's kingdom entered a new phase, you might say. And Jesus is now making it happen, and he is giving his disciples an important role in this cosmic, supernatural work. Jesus has granted these 72 disciples massive ministry power and authority to do much good in the world. Now, certainly, that should be a cause of joy right isn't it a isn't that a deep and godly root of happiness when there are so many messages out there telling us to base our joy in the things of this world or getting as much as we can for ourselves these 72 disciples have rooted their joy in gospel ministry in serving other people and delivering them from their demons (laughs) i mean shouldn't there be joy in that in that kind of ministry? Not only that, but these 72 had recognized that their power and authority was delegated. They said this. They didn't say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. They said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So they even have a certain amount of humility recognizing that Jesus had given them the authority that they are using. So they are serving other people. They've got a powerful ministry. They're truly doing good in the world. They recognize it's a delegated authority, (laughs) What else do you want? Well, actually, Jesus, as we've hinted to above already, he needs to correct them at this point. Their joy needed a more succulent root. He's not denigrating their ministry. He's not denigrating their authority. He's the one who entrusted them with it, as we saw. But he does see that their joy was slightly misplaced. Listen to this Final statement that Jesus makes. Nevertheless, actually, we're going to read all the way from 18. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Yes, you've been given great supernatural authority. The demonic spirits are subject to you. You can deliver people from a life of misery and demonic power. But this is not the ground of your joy. You are to locate the root of your joy in the fact that you are saved. Is there joy in the ministry? Well, absolutely. Paul would even say that the people that he ministered to were his crown and joy. What a delightful way to think about the people of God as a pastor. But Jesus is primarily talking about authority in this passage. You may have some uh, authority given to you by Jesus. In the case of the 72, they had uh, authority over the demonic realm. But spiritual authority isn't a good or fitting place to rest your joy. Let me say that again. Spiritual authority isn't a good or fitting place to rest your joy. Let's bring this home to us. The truth of this passage is, is essential for your consistent joy in the Christian life. It's absolutely essential for us to get this. If you want your joy to remain, if you want it to be steadfast, if you want it to be able to weather difficult trials and situations, it has to be rooted here. If we want to have genuine spiritual joy that lasts, we have to listen very uh, carefully to what Jesus is saying here. This principle is vital. If you are a Christian today, Jesus has delegated to you some spiritual authority. doesn't matter who you are. If you're a Christian, he has delegated to you some measure of spiritual authority. Here are some examples. You may be discipling someone. Christ has granted you some wisdom and some knowledge of the Scripture, and you're now seeking to pass that wisdom and knowledge along to someone else who is younger in the faith. You're able to speak with biblical authority to this disciple. Or you may lead a small group and you are able to teach with some authority to your small group. Or you may be a church leader with some authority over a ministry. Or you may be a parent who has some authority over your children. Or you may write about spiritual things online or in books. Or you may be a pastor that Christ has set over an entire congregation. Or you may be a preacher out on the corner who is preaching the gospel to the lost every weekend. Or you may find that you have gifts in the area of biblical discernment and you're able to speak with biblical authority on theological truth and error. Or you may simply be a Christian who desires to share the gospel and scripture with family and friends. I think I probably covered everyone in here. tried to think of all the categories In each case, God has given you a measure of spiritual authority in this great work of gospel ministry. Every one of us, not just the pastors. This is an important passage for pastors, let me tell you. In fact, I find this passage so important for pastors that I've preached it to pastors. In fact, I preached it to the same group of pastors twice, forgetting that I would preached it the first time, and they had to tell me, you already preached this passage to us. So that's how important it is for pastors. But it's important for all Christians God has given you a major spiritual authority in this great work of gospel ministry, but that authority is not where you and I are to drive our joy. Our joy in the Christian life must flow directly from the reality that we are saved full stop. Full stop. Salvation is more precious than the greatest measure of spiritual authority that Christ could ever give you in this life. Whether you're a pastor of a large congregation or you're overseeing a little group, a little small group, or you're just sharing the gospel with family and friends. See, prior to his fall, God had granted Satan tremendous authority, tremendous authority. Back those passages in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, and Ezekiel 28, 1 through 10... Indicate they seem to indicate that the level of authority that was possessed by Satan prior to his fall was, was next in line to God himself. Now, he was just a creature, and God had delegated authority, but in terms of the creatures, Satan was up at the top in terms of the echelon of the angelic realm. He had tremendous authority, but Satan rebelled and was cast out of heaven despite his authority the encouraging thing that jesus is saying is that your name is etched in heaven and can never be erased that's the root of your joy that's the root of your joy not your spiritual authority and there this is very practical because i want us to consider for a moment what happens what happens when you let that root start to go into that other kind of soil pick up out of that one soil of, of your salvation, being satisfied in your salvation, satisfied in Christ, and it starts to, to creep over into this other soil of your spiritual authority. You start to gain nutrient from that. What happens when, when that starts to occur in your life? Well, inevitably, and I mean that word inevitably, this is what you'll find. You'll find that you start succumbing to pride. You'll find yourself protecting your ministry turf instead of thinking about what's best for the church. Inevitably, we will start feeling threatened when our authority is challenged. If our hope and joy is rooted in anything other than our salvation and we start putting it in to the authority that we might have in the Christian life, we will succumb to pride, we'll start protecting our ministry turf, we'll start getting frustrated with those under our authority. We'll start remaining too long in a ministry that would be better handled by someone else. We'll, and this is important for all of us, and especially pastors, we'll start burning ourselves out with too much ministry. Why? Because that's where you put your joy. Is ministry bad? Of course not. Ministry is a wonderful gift. It's not the place you root your joy. You root it in your salvation so that if and when your ministry authority is taken away, you are still happy, you're still satisfied because you are satisfied in Christ. When I look out across the the pastoral landscape, as it were, and I read about story after story about pastoral burnout, pastoral, pastoral burnout, and in guys burning out of the ministry and and, they, and the the advice that's given well you need to figure out ways to get more exercise or you need to take a long vacation or you need to take a long sabbatical or you need to find you need to have better quiet times or these kinds of things rarely do they get taken to this kind of issue and say it might be that you're actually placing your joy in the wrong place you're finding your joy in the authority that you have over God's people rather than rooting it here in the fact that you are saved full stop. That should that should be all that matters for the Christian. Come what may, my name is written in heaven. And as we'll see as we we'll see in the following in the following passage next next week, or when Cliff gets to it, I don't want to I'm not sure what he's preaching next week, but in the following passage as we walk the way through our way through Luke, this is all grounded in God's sovereignty. Your name is written in heaven. God has done that, not on the basis of your works, not on the basis of him looking down the quarters of time and saying, oh, he's, he's a good guy. I'm going to choose him. No, but on his grace alone, choosing he will reveal himself to whom he will reveal himself. So this is all grace, and this is where we are to root our joy. Why? Because it never changes. When we root our joy here, this makes us humble people. This makes us joyful people. This makes us satisfied people. Should we diligently use our opportunities and even the measure of authority that God has given us for ministry? Of course we should. It's inevitable that you will have some measure of authority in this Christian spiritual authority in this Christian life, and we are to use it. But in order to use it well and wisely, you don't root your joy there. You keep it rooted in your salvation. All our joy should be rooted as deep as possible in this truth. You are saved. Your name is written in heaven. Christ knows you. He loves you. You are saved from eternal judgment. Your place in heaven is secure. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage of scripture. It's short but so important for our spiritual lives Help us to root our joy in the fact that our names are written in heaven, full stop. How wonderful it is to to know you and to be known by you. And even knowing that our salvation doesn't ultimately rest upon us, but ultimately upon you and your sovereign and gracious choice. God, would you help us to root our souls deep in this truth for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.